morning we are going to come here and, and hear uh, the, the word of the Lord preached to us this morning here. We're going to hear it read. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 77 before we, we begin a series going through the Gospel of Mark starting next week. Uh, so we're going to look, be looking at Psalm 77 today. If you have a Bible you can turn. Uh, it should be almost right in the middle of your Bible I would imagine there. Uh, but before we read let's pray first. Lord God, uh, we come to your word and we need ears to hear. We need ears to hear what you have to say to us and we need hearts that are softened to take and receive this word. And we pray, uh, we beg that your spirit would be at work in us, uh, taking this here and forming us, um, forming our response to you, forming us in more in accordance to, to responding to who you are. And so keep us alert and attentive. Um, Lord, would this word here, this psalm, uh, speak to our hearts? Would it, would it penetrate us here? And would you uh, teach us in, in, in new ways um, how we can cry out to you in those times that when, when we need to and uh, be renewed in hope in those times as well? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read Psalm 77 for us. Uh, this is the word of God. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever cease? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? As he in anger shut up his compassion. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Amen. I took a film class in college. It was a, it was a, a, a private Christian college there. And my professor, uh, in, in one moment in class, asked, what do you guys think is the most harmful film for, for a Christian? 
You know, in our minds, our immediately start going to the most filthy, obscene, graphic films that we could think of. And then we're all like nervous to answer because we think that we're going to be judged by other people for having seen those in the first place. But the answer, though, that my professor gave was striking. He said the most dangerous film for a Christian to watch was Pollyanna. Okay. Pollyanna. Now, this is, first of all, not uh, an indictment on you. If you like Pollyanna at all, okay, it's fine. You, can, you know, Polly, you know, it's nothing personal here. But he, ha he had a specific point that he was making. I mean, first of all, Pollyanna is probably one of the most benign, sugary movies that you could think of. Where optimism reigns because everything will end up just fine and everyone is happy no matter the circumstances. Just smile, be glad, and then keep on going through the difficulties of life. And his point that he was trying to make there was that this isn't reality. And it's especially not reality for Christians. All right, there is a certain hope that we have. Praise God for the resurrection and praise God for the restoration that is promised. But that truth, though... And that assurity doesn't just wipe away all pain and all sadness and all grief that we might experience. There's necessary room for sorrow and lament. Because if not, first of all, we wouldn't have psalms like this one that we have. In fact, if you count all of the psalms and you classify them according to, to the, their genre, the highest percentage of psalms are what we would refer to as being laments. So the more that we steep ourselves in and we buy into the Pollyanna idea of life and faith, that there's no room for tears, but that we should just be glad and push our grief away because everything is going to turn out just fine, that doesn't fit very well with the biblical outlook. And if that's the primary outlook of the church, then no wonder that then people are going to question God and they leave the church in the face of trials. And Psalm 77 that we have here is an authentic cry to God in the midst of pain. In fact, the author even questions whether or not God is still there or if he's changed in this. But it's important to recognize that he doesn't just stay there. True lament isn't just sadness or despair in difficult times, but it appeals to God to keep being who he is, steadfast and caring. And that's why even amid the difficulties, the psalmist here cries out to God at the beginning here. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. He knows that God hears the voices and the pleas of his people. He isn't distant. He isn't far off. He's interested in hearing their cries and their prayers. And it doesn't matter how big or small those situations are. Because in one sense, our perception doesn't matter. The Psalms as a whole constantly refer to giving our fears to God, acknowledging them and vocalizing them to him. But never once do they talk about the size. They never say, Lord, you only hear the big ones, or this one is, is probably a little bit insignificant, but maybe you will take notice. They just say, bring your fears before the Lord. It doesn't matter how big they are. It doesn't matter how small they are. Because sometimes the ones that appear big really aren't that big. But also the ones that really are big aren't 
that big in comparison to God. And again, he wants to hear your fears, even if you're self-conscious, and say, it's a small one. Because the reality is that if you're afraid of something, then it isn't small to you. But see, God doesn't care about the size of it. He cares about you. It doesn't matter if you have anxieties. It doesn't matter if you're facing death. It doesn't matter even if you're just afraid of what the kids at school might think. God says to bring them all, all your fears before him, no matter what they are. He hears them and he wants to hear you as you unburden yourself to him. But the crisis here, though, in this psalm is that to his perception, it's as if God isn't listening. Because he has desperate cries that continue into the evening. Day and night he seeks the Lord. He extends his hands, pleading that God would reveal himself. But the only response that he receives in turn is silence. And so the question that he wrestles with internally is, where is God? Where is he? I'm in trouble, and he says that he hears my cries, so where is he? Is he absent? And why is he quiet? Have I done something to bring this on? Is he angry with me? Does God even care right now? And the difficult and the painful times that we go through are only worsened when it appears as if we're all alone and that God isn't there. It adds to the weight that presses down upon us and it grinds us further into the dirt, just left to be crushed in in the dust all alone. This psalm describes real-life situations that many of us have gone through, even down to that sleeplessness that he experiences. Because we see him laying on his bed at night, weary of his crying. He's so disturbed that not only can he not sleep, he can't even pray coherently either. He says, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. His prayers turn into mumbled cries and these sobbing moans. So what else there is there to do than to think about the old times? Think about the times back when life was a little bit more pleasant. It says that he remembers his song in the night. His song being this echo and memories of times past, back when life was good. And he thinks about those moments to help bring him some comfort. But that only adds to the confusion and the sadness. Because he remembers that's how things were. Those were the sweet moments that I had with God. Those were the times when I really experienced his favor. And so this introduces a whole new crisis to him. In verses 7 through 9, has God changed? What if everything I thought about God is actually wrong? Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? What if everything I thought about God was actually wrong? Because if he were here with me, like I thought that he was before, then wouldn't things look a lot different? Maybe God has changed. Maybe his promises have finally run out. Maybe his favor towards me is over. Maybe his covenant faithfulness is done. Has he denied that? Or perhaps he hasn't changed. But perhaps God's disposition towards me has changed. Has his compassion run out? Is he no longer gracious to me? Maybe he shows it to other people, but he's just decided that he's done with me. Or maybe 
I've never actually really belonged to him, and so those promises don't apply to me. See, sometimes our circumstances have this way of clouding our vision about God. This most commonly happens, we know, when we go through difficulties. We measure God through the lenses of our experience. And we start to ask questions that mentally we know the answers to, and we affirm them with our lips. But we're still led to question down in our hearts. And this is why when he meditates on God, he moans, as it says in verse 3. And it only continues then as his understanding of God is viewed through the lens of the good times and the bad times. Verse 6, let me meditate on my heart. His objective views of God are overtaken by his own subjective circumstances. It's like his present situation that he's in. We don't know what it's in or what it is, but his present situation here is like a pair of dirty and smudged glasses. He puts them on and it changes the way that he sees everything. And God isn't exempt from that. And that's when our views of God and his perceived absence, when they they run wild. Because he says he's there, but my situation tells me otherwise. It says that he can't possibly be there. And if he is there, then why am I suffering like this? It's led some people to have changed their, their views of God if they haven't just left them altogether. And at the very least, it leads us to idle speculation about him and about ourselves. So what we need is our view of God to be grounded in reality. Our understanding of him doesn't just come out of nowhere, does it? It comes in who he says he is. But it's also, though, in what he's done to demonstrate who he says he is. All right, someone can tell you that they're a very kind person. Someone can tell you I'm a very humble person. But until they actually show it, those are just words, aren't they? So it needs to be grounded in something firm and objective. And if we can't do that, if we can't talk about God in that, in this sort of objective way, then we're going to lose more and more people, both young and old alike, to abandonment of the faith. Because experience is a powerful thing, and we can't ignore that fact. That kids, just because life gets hard, or just because bad things happen to you, or you see bad things happening to other people, it doesn't mean that God isn't there. It doesn't mean that God is is gone. It doesn't mean that he isn't good. And you might start to ask some questions, and that's okay. Asking questions isn't wrong, but the psalmist here asks questions. But it's when we ask questions, we want to also look for answers, though, too. And God gives us answers. He reminds us who he is. Not only by what he says, but he reminds us by what he's done. So when suffering arises and we say that God is gracious and good, what's the basis that we can affirm that on? Well, we need to see... God in light of what he's done in real history. And that's where the psalmist goes here. Even though he's been wounded and he's been in deep grief, he looks not only at God, but more importantly, he looks at the works of God. Rather than meditating with speculation upon God from his circumstances, he now begins to meditate on what God has done and accomplished in real time and space history. In verse 12, I will ponder all your work And meditate on your mighty deeds. Without being grounded in any sense of reality, our thoughts are bound to go elsewhere. They question and they doubt 
They, we don't remember, though, for sentimentality, but to see God rightly, to be built up in faith and to be built up in remembrance of who he says he is and whom he has, pro- and, and has proven by his acts. There's a quote from Charles Spurgeon on the front of your worship guides there, and it says, I love it. It fits perfectly here. It says, memory is a fit handmaiden for faith. And the events that the writer here of the psalm that he ponders are that of redemption. And he goes back and he thinks about the Exodus event. He starts thinking about the defining moment of redemption in Israel's history. When God heard the cries of his people when they were slaves, and he rescued them out from their bonds with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He brought them out of bondage because he loved them. And because he made a covenant to their forefather Abraham. These were his people, and he loved them enough to free them. And afterwards then, he sealed them as his own people as he entered into a covenant relationship with them. He bound himself to them so that they would know him and that he would be their God. Always. And he led them through the difficulties. He led them through the barrenness of the wasteland and the wilderness. He gave them food and drink. He ensured even also that a stitch of their clothes did not wear out during their time of wandering. Now, if that's what he did for them, then how could he abandon them? How could he abandon his people? And not just Israel as a whole, but even his individuals. How could he be absent from them? How could he cast aside his promises? See, everything that he had done would have been in vain. Neglected everything that he told them about himself. Would have negated everything. See, this, what we're referring to here and what this is referring to here isn't a speculative faith about God. It's not a blind faith, but there's a real call to trust in him. And not just out of our own musings or our own ideas. But it's a call to remember who God is no matter what in, the times, in whatever time it is or your situation. Because you can trust him and take him at his word because he has proven it again and again in the past. So the more that we look at ourselves, or sorry, the more that we look at God and the less that we look at ourselves, our perspective begins to change. In fact, even in this psalm, note the focus of the pronouns. It starts with I. I cry aloud to God. I, I, but by the end, it switches to you. He's looking less at himself and he's looking more to God. And that doesn't take away the grief and it doesn't take away the pain that he's experiencing. But his focus, though, slowly shifts away from what he's going through to who God is. And that's when he finally begins to have hope. Because the psalm, then, it, it, it fades into a scene of a violent storm. It's filled with waves and wind and rain and thunder and lightning crashing down. It's a big storm. A storm, to be certain, under the control and obedience of God. But a storm that inspires fear and dread nonetheless. The storm's a metaphor for whatever it is that he's going through. And for the emotions that he's feeling. It's chaotic. It's turbulent. It's unstable. There's nothing like a powerful storm that shows our helplessness, right? right? You're unable to stop it. You're unable to divert it. You can't hide from the storm. It just looms overhead with this foreboding darkness. And then it crashes down. And all you can do is to just take cover and hope to ride it out. 
Right? There's a reason that we use storms as a metaphor for our fears and for our moments of grief in life. It's just the same for us as, as it is for the psalmist. And sometimes the wind and the waves and the rains batter us over and over, and sometimes for a very long time. But the picture of the storm here, it suddenly begins to shift out of focus. And in this moment of blurriness, it's just this blur, and you can still see these swirls. And you can hear, though, the turbulent waters. You can hear they're crashing down. This scene comes back into focus. And it's not a storm anymore, but it's rather now the scene of, not of a, of a, of a storm, but of a sea. In fact, it's now the Red Sea. It's the waters as they're swirling and opening up and dividing with Israel passing through safely on dry ground. See, it was there at the Red Sea that Israel had their backs against the wall. It was there, though, that God had led them out of Egypt and he had rescued them. He had brought them there at the water's edge. But now the armies of Pharaoh and of Egypt have been coming out and then emptied from Egypt and they've been pressing it upon them there. And here they are, trapped with the enemy on one side and the sea on the other. And this moment of helplessness that they have, they begin to cry out and question why God had led them there in the first place. Did you bring us out here to die? Was it, wasn't it better for us when we were slaves? Did something change about you? Or did we do something wrong? What about your promises? What about your care? Have they ceased? But God intervened and he opened up a way for them. He delivered them in their helplessness by bringing them through the sea. Their path wasn't, wasn't around the waters. Their path wasn't over the waters. God led them through the waters. And can you imagine what that must have been like, right? We have this, sometimes this flannel graph vision of the Red Sea of the waters just nicely parting into these nice walls. Right, but I think there must have been a level of fear walking through those waters, seeing suddenly the, the waters of the sea pulled apart, raging and swirling still. And then I have to walk through that? Okay, that's a, you know, I'm afraid of, of, of the army coming to get me here, but I'm pretty afraid of these waters walking through them there too. But see, where was God in all of it? He was there the whole time. He's one who opened the way between the waters. And he was there, still in their fears, walking alongside them through the raging sea, through the waters as it opened. But what it, where was he, though? I love this in verse 19. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. God was with them the whole time. He was passing through the raging waters with them, but he had never left them, not even in their questioning. His footprints were unseen. They couldn't see him. He wasn't absent, though. And even when he did open, them, open up the way through the sea, he didn't just send them up through alone to walk in their fear, but he went with them. He went alongside them, and he wouldn't leave them. The Lord of the Red Sea the one who guided Israel to safety, and he walked alongside them unseen, is also the Lord of whatever storm it is that assails you. And just as he walked with unseen footsteps through the sea, he also walks alongside you unseen 
through that storm. He will forge a path. Although it might be a fearsome time there, but he will be at your side. And as the storms come upon you, as they batter you, as the darkness sets in, either in these current moments, maybe in a time past, and certainly in something that you will experience someday. Who is God? He's the one who redeems. And he's brought it forth in real history. The footprints of God may have been invisible with Israel passing through the Red Sea, but there was a point in history where the footprints of God were visible, where redemption came in Jesus. The Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us, and he walked among us. And so our confidence in God amid the storm and the stress can be trusted because it has been set in concrete by Jesus Christ. In fact, we cannot consider God apart from considering his works in Jesus Christ. All right. He is the objective redemption of God's people. It's his cross that has redeemed us from our sin as he took it in our place. It was his empty tomb that has set us free from the shadow of fear and death and darkness. Hope and resurrection have burst into the world and taken its place. His life has become our righteousness. His sonship is the basis for our adoption. And so as we ourselves even, as humanity, as we were totally helpless in our sins, Jesus came as God's redemption to make a way out of certain death and to lead us through into promise in life. And Jesus is the sign of God's steadfast covenant love that will never depart from his people. If, if the Father has given him to you, what more can he do to prove his love and his care for you? Jesus himself is that bond of promise that has sealed you as one of his people by faith. But we can't forget also that Jesus also prayed this psalm. Right? Jesus, growing up as a Jewish man, the psalms made up the everyday prayers and the, and the songs of worship that, he, that they had. And as he sang this psalm, both corporately with, with all the other uh, rest of God's people, he also sang it and prayed it in his the own private moments of his life to God the Father. Right? His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his betrayal and crucifixion, right? knowing full well that he was about to pass through a storm that was going to wash over him over and over all the way to death. It was troubling to him beyond comprehension. As he hung on the cross, he cried out in his darkness. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what does he hear in return? He hears the deafening silence of the Father's wrath being poured out upon him for us. But the difference, though, with Jesus here is that he has ultimately trusted that his Father would see him through that storm, see him through that darkness, see him through death all the way to resurrection and glory. But Jesus, though, walks alongside you now. And as he does, he prays for you. And he intercedes for you in your darkest struggles. And he does so then with the deepest sympathies and the deepest gentleness. Because he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to go through that storm. He knows what it's like to, to have cried out and, and seemingly getting a response of nothing. He knows what it's like. He's been there. He knows what it's like to be in utter darkness. He has endured those storms, the deepest storms, all the way to death. 
He's gone through helplessness. He knows what all of it feels like because he has lived it. And still, even though he knows what it feels like, what does he do? He bears you up in your burdens. He prays for you. He knows how to pray for you in your weakness. He knows how to best support you, how to best care for you, because he has been there before. He knows what it feels like. And he walks beside you amid your storms. He walks alongside you in your questioning of God that you might have in those times. And even when it feels like God is absent, Christ Jesus is with you, though his footsteps might be unseen. Now, I'm new here, right? I've only been here for a few weeks. Um, just starting to get to know some of you. And some of you I know just little bits of your stories, and certainly not everything. But from what little I do know so far, so I know some of you have suffered long and difficult seasons in life. You have suffered, or some of you might even be suffering right now. And God's people aren't exempt from any, any suffering. I know that some here have gone through seasons of loss, and of grief, and of mourning. And some of you still might even be finding yourself in walking through the valley of death's deep darkness. Or some of you are having to endure the realities of physical pain as being your everyday experience. People have anxieties. People go through depression and other mental illnesses. People have questions that arise from those sorts of things. There may have been prolonged times that you've had of walking through, through uh, neighbors and loved ones and spouses or children being in deep pain. Life is full of disappointments. Disappointments as relationships crumble. Disappointments that come with infertility. Disappointments that come with lost jobs. Disappointments that come with betrayal. Or that life just hasn't gone the way that you thought it would or that, that you thought it would. And some here may have questioned God as children have left the faith. Or have children have wandered into substance abuse. Or maybe you've just simply suffered for years in silence. But no matter what it is, no matter what it is that you've gone through, no matter what it is that you are going through, no matter what it is that you will go through, God has always been with you. He may have been unseen in those times, but he has never once been absent. He has walked alongside you whether you realize it or not. Jesus has not once left your side. He knows and he cares. And he will walk with you to the end. Note that at the end of this psalm, there's no resolution. We don't find out what happens. Was this psalmist delivered from his situation or not? Did things get better? We don't know. All that we're left with here is this remembrance of God's redeeming hand through the Red Sea and his unseen footprints following along with him. And in reality, that's all that we need to know. Because as much as we would like to think there's no promise that things will just turn out okay, or that things will promise as we have hoped. But it does, though, cause us to think about who God is in our situations. That he's sufficient, and that his presence is sufficient for us. Admittedly, as a pastor, I want to I fix things. I don't know if you knew it, but you know, sometimes pastors, when they are first ordained, 
feel like, like oh, I've, I've been given, given some sort of magic pastor hand. I can just wave my hand and fix everything. It'll be all okay. And I've wanted to just wave that, what I thought I got at my ordination years back. Just wave my pastor's hand and just make everything better. But that doesn't work. For one thing, you don't actually get one if you didn't know. Um, but there are plenty of situations that I just can't fix. And it's taken me some time, but I've found that the best thing that I can do is all to just gently remind you that God is with you and that he will never leave. And I realize that, that that may not make everything better. I realize that it doesn't fix the situation. But knowing, though, that God isn't absent from you, despite your circumstances and despite what seems to be true, that makes all the difference. Because there isn't one moment throughout the entire course of human history in which God has changed and because of that, he will see you through. He is never changing. He will always be there. He will always be the same. And if you are in Christ, because of that, you have never been abandoned. God has never been absent from you in your situation. He has led you through the storm and the sea, though he has been unseen. He is unchanging. And the steadfast love for you that he has will never change. And no matter what you will face in the future... He will still be with you and he will still walk alongside you no matter what. God himself never changes. And even in this psalm, we don't have any indication that the situation changed for this person crying out here. But the most important change that we see is in us. We become like the psalmist and we experience change as we better learn to remember God's redemptive care for us and to recognize him as he walks with us. And his situation may not have ended. But his faith, though, was renewed by dwelling on God's redemption. And we've seen that redemption clearly given to us in Jesus. And so no matter what, in whatever situation, whether in darkness or whether in times of gladness, don't look at God apart from considering who he is in Jesus. He is good. He is compassionate. And he will be with you all the way, even until the end. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are a God who is never changing. And that there are times, though, when we might question, where are you? Who are you, God? And in those times, as we lift our voices to you, as we, we cry out to you, would you, though, calmly and gently, by your spirit, nudge us, nudge our eyes back again to the cross and to the empty tomb and to Jesus who sits ascended on high for us, Father, at your right hand, the one who is interceding for us. So that in whatever time of darkness we might be going through, we don't just simply have to summon up whatever strength that we, we might find within ourselves or be beaten down by that, but that you would nourish us and you would lift us up knowing that you, God, you, Jesus, you, Spirit, are with us. Encourage those here who might be feeling the burdens of the past or the present. Train us then to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus for whenever the burdens of the future will come upon us then. And allow us to always remember that your footsteps are with us though they are unseen. In Jesus' name, amen.